how the data could be um, interoperable. And that's a huge challenge. And I think this is the reason manufacturing, how it has been developed. Of course, each of the big automation companies had no interest to make things compatible. They wanted everybody to buy all their solutions. Um, so I think that element of interoperability is important. There are some efforts, um, Manufacturing USA Institute, uh, headquartered UCLA called SESME, is focused on this type of common data format and so on. Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Status Go podcast, where we dive deep into the world of innovation and the driving forces behind it. I'm your host, Jeff Tun, and today we have a special guest who's been at the forefront of empowering small and medium-sized enterprises in the manufacturing space to embrace innovation and adapt to changing times. Our guest today is Ali Shakuri. Ali is a professor at Purdue University and the lead of the Wabash Heartland Innovation Network. He's also the co-author of a fascinating HBR article that examines the post-pandemic transformation of supply chain. It's this article that we're going to chat through today uh, this the transformation that is going on in the supply chains uh, has been brought about by a renewed focus on regional and resilient solutions, opening up a world of growth opportunities for small and medium-sized manufacturers. But you see, they've been through a lot in that space. Uh, when you when you think about uh, the early two thousands and the offshoring that was going on specifically in the manufacturing space. Many of these SMEs uh, in the manufacturing space uh, spent their focus on crafting lower volume, complex to ship components for industries like automotive, aerospace, and industrial equipment. They managed to survive, but this, the growth that has happened in other sectors was somewhat elusive. So we're going to dig into some of the challenges that they have they're facing when they're when they're confronted with where do we go from here and this changing of the supply chain. You know, they've been using the same processes uh, that have been proven effective. How do you how do you change when you've been doing the same thing for many many years? They may have a limited willingness to invest in the face of growing demand because they're constantly getting cost pressures from their customers. These are thin margin businesses, right? Uh, and foreign competition uh, many times can undercut costs. And then finally, some of the one of the things that we've talked a lot about here on Status Go is this digital landscape that is so rapidly evolving and growing can be intimidating because it's it requires new skills. Uh, and new ways to approach these uh, to approach work. All of these factors combined make it really challenging for SMEs to keep up with the technologies that are reshaping the competitive landscape. 
Ali and I will discuss ways that these organizations can leverage technology to drive innovation. And I will say to those of you who may not be in the manufacturing space, these concepts will work for you as well. So Ali, with that, welcome to Status Go. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm glad to discuss about such an important topic uh, that have kept us busy in the last seven, eight years. Yeah, yeah. You've been you've been very busy uh, since we last spoke. I've been looking at uh, some of your other work that's available. Uh, before we we dive into this, would you share a little bit about your background, uh, your journey, and uh, kind of wrap it up with your focus of your work there at Purdue? Uh, yes, um, I did my uh, PhD and postdoctoral work in the area of optoelectronic and semiconductor physics. Uh, that was a time when you know the fiber optics was expanding with internet, with multi-wavelength networks, and so on. And I could see how the new technology was changing everyday life. We, all of us know what happens to our um, you know, computers, how they shrank and what happens with um, our uh, tablets and uh, smartphones. But what is on the backbone is also huge advances, how we make chips, how we make fiber optic components. So that is my background and that's what I did my research. Um, I had some work about studying some of these um, and I had a couple of students. We commercialized some of the technology for um, integrating integrated circuit characterization, specifically for thermal imaging. I came to Purdue in 2011 uh, to lead the Burke Nanotechnology Center. It's one of the largest uh, and cleanest university clean rooms. I felt there's a, a, really a great investment here, a lot of outstanding faculty. But then I told myself, um, what does nanotechnology Midwest means if we try to do the same thing where the center of gravity is in Silicon Valley or, you know, the East Coast, uh, we do it the same 30, 40 years later, we can never catch up. So I was um, already thinking when I came here, there's a lot of good resources, but we need an ecosystem nearby. I myself benefited from having my graduate students uh, when I was a professor at University of California in Santa Cruz find jobs within a radius of you know one, one and a half hour drive and then they come back, help the existing students. And the same thing happened during my uh, PhD and postdoc uh, when I was in Southern California. Um, and I think here uh, in the nano area, a lot of our graduates find jobs on the two coasts, which is good. Yeah. Part of our mandate is to train good students. But um, the question is, what could be the areas we take the niche? And uh, we uh, identified applications of IoT, Internet of Things, to ag, food, healthcare is an area that is more nascent. And this is an area that maybe Midwest could be a center of gravity. And we started focusing on that. That was my first introduction to manufacturing. What happened is that at universities, we are very good in uh, demonstrating a new idea, a new type of a device, a new type of an algorithm. And of course, we build uh, uh, companies, startups, and a lot of things out of it. But the 
strength in Midwest um, is also how to make the same thing at the large scale, at the low cost. And that's actually hard to do at university. We always say we have a student-dependent effect. Oh, this student can make this device work. Another student manufacturing needs to be more mature. So really, in the working on manufacturing is more challenging. And um, we started developing some test beds for this, what we call smart films, um, scalable manufacturing of aware and responsive thin films with an industry consortium. And we learned that actually manufacturing um, can benefit from data in a way that was not uh, possible before. Why manufacturing is hard? Because everything is about how you scale up something that if you know how to make it, but now you need to make at thousands or tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands at the low cost. And uh, how do you, uh, you know, optimize everything? And uh, the, the key challenge is to get the specs down. How do you control each step? But with advance of data, we learned that we don't need to make the specs as narrow as possible. Some of the variability that happens in earlier stage scale up can be corrected using data and kind of some sort of data analytics. So that was our uh, kind of foray into digital and manufacturing, specifically for the manufacturing work we were doing at the university for IoT devices. About uh, six, seven years ago, uh, you know, we were fortunate. Uh, there were um, a study uh, by Lily Endowment uh, mm -hmm. about how to make, make our region more prosperous. That's the uh, project Wabash Heartland Innovation Network that you alluded to. Um, so the uh, genesis of the project was uh, Purdue and the 10 counties around us. Um, has about 400,000 people in this part of, in within a radius of, uh, you know, maybe 50 miles or so. And this is among the uh, rural areas, but we have um, 250 to 300 small, medium manufacturers in our region. We have a couple of thousand farmers in our region. These are the two main assets. We have one of the best farming lands, and we have a lot of manufacturing in our uh, um, uh, 10-county region. Um, but uh, between 2000 and 2010, like the rest of the U.S., we lost about one-third of a manufacturing job. Yeah. So there's already the pressure, and we see it economically in the counties, specifically around Purdue. And um, uh, uh, so that is uh, causing a pressure. So the Lillian Dahman gave funding. They wanted to give funding, and they said, we want Purdue to work with the region to help in ag and manufacturing. And um, you know, in some sense, it's an interesting coincidence. All of this happened before COVID and so on. Nobody <laughs> predicted yeah. COVID happened. But as a result of it, between 2016, 17, when we started thinking about this, the actual project was funded uh, in 2018 as a five-year project. And um, we have started working with uh, ag people in the region with our uh, College of Ag with extension program and also with manufacturers. Let me focus on the manufacturing side. What we notice is we do have a couple of big manufacturers in our region, Subaru is here, Caterpillar, Babash, and so on. But like any other uh, you know, average US, I think 98% of the US manufacturers have less than 500 people. So really majority are small. And when we went there, 
uh, to discuss how uh, Purdue could help them. And our idea was that data and IoT could help them. Some of the small manufacturers says, they, we had to Google IoT before you came to see really what you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> so how far they are. So through this project, um, I think rather than sitting down and doing a lot of uh, analysis, we said learn by doing. So we send student groups, do some project, install some sensors with the idea that students spending time in the factory floor, they learn the environment and providing data to manufacturers um, will be hopefully helpful for them. So through the initial years of the project, we had uh, uh, workshops and we had students starting uh, installing sensors and getting data. And low-hanging fruit everybody talks about is um, condition-based maintenance. How can, by listening to the motors and all the machines, you can predict before they fail. And we started doing some of that, but we also realized that's not where it's hurting. Most of our manufacturers, uh, as uh, still is the case, they don't have enough uh, labor that they could hire. Productivity improvement is what they need. Mm -hmm. And so the question is how um, uh, we could help with that. And that's harder, correct? Because yeah. each of them has uh, is a different workflow. And, um, and I think part of the... Um, uh, I, so lesson is that uh, in some industries, startups and the startup ecosystem bring new technology. And what happens is that there are good uh, effort in the area of smart manufacturing, sometimes called Industry 4.0. But exactly. it seems to me, and that was the, the impression we had, is that the entry point is uh, too high, is that meaning that a lot of companies, they don't even know what will be an ROI, and they cannot spend tens of thousands of dollars just in a solution to, to get data. And because each of them is different, uh, the scalability is a challenge. I think a lot of the lessons that we highlighted in this article in Harvard Business Review has to do with the lessons we learned, what are uh, potential areas we could work on that is scalable and where manufacturers could um, learn from each other. That's another po important point. Yeah. Cohort are really essential. Um, but also, you know, not everything that we as a faculty, we can write papers about it is not relevant to small medium. So really matching the two sides um, was a good um, back and forth. Uh, so I think this is some of the elements of um, how this project came about. Well, and I, I, I love that you're, you're sending students into the shop floor uh, to work side by side because not only are you able to help the manufacturers, but hopefully the students are catching the, the bug and wanting to stay and solve, continue to solve problems. Uh, I know in, uh, and we've talked a lot about this uh, on this program, uh, in ag tech, uh, the, the, that specific sector of technology and the intersection of agriculture. A uh, good friend of mine is at uh, Beck Hybrid Seed Company and is involved with Purdue, uh, Brad Fruth, uh, in looking for innovation. And I think that's the other side of this coin, right, is is driving innovation. How do you, when, when you're focused so much on uh, on just doing things the way you've always done them, finding time for innovation, 
can be difficult because of those the things I mentioned uh, from your article. You know, the hey, we've done the, th- these are our processes; they've worked for us. Um, the margins are razor thin, so we don't have money to invest. Um, but one of the things you point out uh, in your article is that the pandemic itself has caused a shift in the supply chain. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen in that shift? And then I'd love to dive into some of the solutions that you outline in your Harvard Business Review article. Well, I think uh, one of the um, lessons uh, that um, we learned during the pandemic is that over the years through a lot of innovations about uh, how to scale things up and offshoring and so on, we have optimized our supply chain to be the most efficient, lowest cost because you no, know, who wants to pay more? Right. Pandemic showed us, uh, by the way, this is quite fragile. <laughs> All you have yeah. is one thing <laughs> happens in the Suez Canal, and then you know for six months everything uh, is affected. Yeah. Some you know, guy crashes a boat and it backs up manufacturing across the world. Yeah, and think about what happened with the chip supplies for cars, and you know yeah. how many factories had to. So I think the big lesson, which probably people have not appreciated, is this. Um, focus on best efficiency and the lowest cost has made our system fragile. And we need to do something about it because, you know, we know natural events happen and so on, okay, and even pandemic, uh, you know, it's not that every hundred years will happen, who knows, it could be sooner, there are other things. So I think that's number one. So as a result, there were interests in local manufacturing and um, how to uh, kind of encourage domestic manufacturing. And I think this is an area in which, you know, U.S. in a more fortunate situation than Europe, because Europe kind of abandoned manufacturing earlier because they said service is better and so on. They're dirty things. Let's kind of send it offshore. For them, it's much harder to come back. Yeah. I think in the case of manufacturing, we do have some strength. Uh, the, my co-author, really, she is actually one of the first people in 2006-7, you know, when the first economic crisis happened, um, wrote some uh, very influential article about the importance of manufacturing commons. And he emphasized that, you know, there is certain know-how, certain relations, uh, expertise that exists regionally. And once you get, uh, you lose it, it's not easy just, okay, let's bring the company back here because the supplier of the company, the the maintenance, all of these go with it. I think uh, even though we had some losses, we have, at least in Midwest, um, a lot of good um, uh, know-how. The challenge is, uh, well, first of all, these companies are good because they survived the yeah, yeah. Only challenge of 2000 to 2010, but the pressure keep going. And, you know, the, uh, even, um, and I think another comment that um, really made was that 
all the manufacturers that the competition that was built in Asia had newer factory than us. So by definition, they're lower barrier. They get data for free because that's their newer machine. Yeah. And uh, here we have had uh, uh, manufacturing places that we visit and, you know, uh, some of them, they have machines that are working continuously for 50 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if working, don't touch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so in your in the article that you and Willie she wrote, um, uh, one of the, the first thing that you mentioned in here is near and dear to my heart because I'm a software guy, uh, and and you talk about leveraging new simulation uh, software tools. Are you are you talking about things like digital twins? Is that the kind of thing you're talking about, or are there different kinds of tools? Well, I think uh, eventually people want to get to digital twins and so on. Um, but our idea was that um, um, maybe the advance of AI and some of the uh, kind of machine learning may have lowered the barrier because um, before, if you want to develop a digital twin for a line, you need to hire a couple of software people. There's lots of back and forth to optimize it and make it production ready and robust. Um, so the, the barrier is high. You will only do it for high value added product and things that uh, you can put a couple of people to uh, emphasize that. So one of the ideas is that now the computer uh, user interface and the way you write program, all of them have lowered the barrier. So maybe more smaller manufacturer could introduce a simulation tool. The idea is identify bottleneck in the whole, you know, yeah. manufacturing steps or their supply chain or inventory. Eventually, I think uh, by le them learning how to do this and uh, have more and more simulation tool, then they will have a digital twin of their uh, whole uh, maybe operation. But that's uh, even farther. I think there is a lot of low-hanging fruits. Things that they can do before they get that, uh, that involved and that sophisticated. I think hand-in-hand uh, -hand with, with that, and you've mentioned data several times. And I, I think when we, uh, when we, when we talked uh, the first time, Ali, you mentioned that many of these manufacturers that you walked into initially uh, were doing things on paper. Uh, so not only didn't they know what IOT was, uh, they were on paper. So uh, how do you begin to have them shift their mindset that data can help drive this innovation within that sector. What are what are some of the things that you you suggest that they look to? Um, I, that's a very good question. So first of all, you know, it's not that they don't want to, but you know, once it's working, uh, and then uh, adding a digital solution, um, you, you, it needs to be integrated in the workflow. And um, and of course, if you have a state-of-the-art manufacturing ex execution system, uh, MES and so on, it already has some of this digital, but the challenge is most of our small medium manufacturers, they don't have that. Um, so um, I think there is a big component is at the end, who 
gets the data are the factory floor worker. And there is a cultural change and some, um, their engagement, you cannot just uh, add something to them and you know you do your job and now you start typing and no, they need to be engaged. There is two elements to it. One is the comfort with how to input the data, but the second part of it is really the buy-in as we know, data could be used in many ways. And one of the first thing could come to people's big brother watching and, you know, right. then it's become counterintuitive. You know, I think one of the things we realize is a lot of a small media manufacturer look at their workers at their family and, you know, they are together. So I think, but on the other hand, you cannot just force things. It takes some time to for them to take ownership and i think it's a learning for everybody what is the best way of doing things um, um, i think that's one element of it the second part is um, how the data could be um, interoperable and that's a huge challenge and yeah. i think this is the reason manufacturing how it has been developed of course each of the big automation companies had no interest to make things compatible they wanted everybody to buy all their yes. solutions <laughs> and uh, you know if i was in their shoe probably i would do the same correct why would i <laughs> make my market margins and more competition higher um, so i think that element of interoperability is important. There are some efforts, um, Manufacturing USA Institute uh, headquartered UCLA called SESME is focused on this type of common data format and so on. But at the end, it's not a, a top-down approach. Yeah. Industry people need to work together. Um, one has to find ways, um, of course, uh, there is something common, something open, and on top of it, you can build your proprietary models and proprietary solutions. Um, I think similar um, challenges existed in computer industry. I remember, you know, in 70s, DEC and IBM had uh, outstanding systems and they have their own languages, their own operating system. Only with actually interesting some effort of um, uh, uh, universities such as uh, UC Berkeley, MIT, as well as Bell Labs, uh, Unix came about and then Linux. And then now we have an ecosystem that, okay, there is a Linux that is open and people can make it easily uh, add compound. But on top of it, you know, of course, Google can make money out of it by making their own operating system. Do you think we'll see that same kind of thing come to the manufacturing space where they're sharing at that level? That's something that really remains to be seen. That's a very good question. As we are discussing of how this data compatibility and kind of collaborative atmosphere could develop, our ideas or our motivation is this. Look at Python, look at Linux. There are a yeah. few others. I think we need that, but the question is, who is going to do the groundwork? <laughs> and who are the people? Because that is uh, the real challenge. Well, and and I think you lay out in the in the article some other ideas, uh, but one I want to highlight, and that is uh, leverage programs from universities and outside resources. I I don't know that that we we in business. Uh, in, in the business sector, always think of partnering with our universities to help in that. Can you speak to a little bit about 
the program specifically at Purdue, but in general, uh, how universities are helping solve some of these problems? Well, I think uh, at certain level, um, uh, many universities have um, quite vibrant industry uh, research program. But the way it works, and that's cause a matching issue, is that if you are a big company, Boeing, GE, uh, you know, Lockheed Martin and others, you have some general challenges. You can give uh, some big funding to university, support a couple of graduate students, PhD students, and that's how, and I think there's a lot of good work there. What has been missing is how the small manufacturers could benefit from the strength of the research universities. But there is a level of, okay, manufacturers uh, propose senior design projects, and this is good. Uh, Okay, you have a group of undergraduates for six weeks, 10 weeks, 16 weeks, work on a prop. But this is not research intensive. This is kind of get your feet wet on a good problem. And you don't. It's also short term, right? Some of these problems are bigger than that. So I think uh, so. Th- there is this will of the faculty want to have an impact, but uh, the difficulty is how to match this with tiny bits of here and there. And I think that has been the challenge. One of the lessons we learned, the project we have with um, uh, currently funded by National Science Foundation Future Manufacturing involve uh, five, six faculty at Purdue, three faculty at Harvard University, two at Tuskegee, and uh, two at Ivy Tech Community College. Uh, one of our, you know, a lot of thoughts went to it is to define projects that matches the expertise and the PhD level, but there is enough commonalities that multiple small medium manufacturers could help. Yeah. And I think that requires some thinking. It's not, you know, let's do whatever is possible to help them. I think this identifying of some of the low um, common areas for us, one of them is privacy preserving uh, machine learning. Again, AI have changed the way a lot what we do yeah. things. But that happened with lots of uh, label data sets in a, in a big data center. That's what Google and Amazon and so on have it. None of the manufacturers, even the big ones, have enough type of label data to do this. Yeah. So we need, but on the other hand, nobody will put all of their raw data into some sort of um, data lake. Um, even with some anonymization, you know, it's very hard. Uh, you can always de-anonymize and so on. So part of our focus has been this guarantees, which is algorithmically can be guaranteed that you cannot uh, reverse engineer. You never share your raw data, but we can interrogate your data and get some information out. And that interrogation now can learn from multiple manufacturers without mixing their data and so on. So that was so one. I don't have to give up my my IP uh, in, my, in my data. I, I can still participate. It can still participate. Again, we can interrogate the question, and before we get the result out of your uh, uh, manufacturing data, you can see what is the question. We are not asking, you know. (laughs) So that is one. The second part of it is uh, a lot of the great AI advances have happened with big centralized databases. In manufacturing, there are rules, and we need to identify some of these common processes centralized, but a lot of the things happen at the edge. And if you just take all of the data 
to the cloud, it will be too expensive anyway in terms of the infrastructure required and what is the resources needed to keep it. So we have a focus on edge analytics, what we call tiny machine learning, tiny ML. Uh-huh. So these are some of the building blocks that we have identified and we hope um, uh, again, working with uh, manufacturers on the specific productivity quality challenges they have, we can grow it slowly. I think one of the uh, really uh, important lessons for us is, and it takes time, you know, after four or five years of working with industry, now we have a couple of partners who are sharing their production data with us. And that is has been a big uh, plus because real life data is so valuable. Actually, yeah. computer scientists are hungry for that. And uh, now we get, get our hand on it. And that's how this AI commons that we are discussing is uh, shaping up and slowly growing. Well, it, it, it provides value to the researchers so that they can have a, have a larger data set to learn more, gain more insights, and it's providing value to the manufacturers. So, uh, Ali, we're, we're about out of time here, but I want to uh, ask for those that are listening that uh, we've piqued their curiosity, uh, they want to learn more. Obviously, we're going to link to the show notes, uh, link in the show notes to your uh, HBR article, and they can read that. But where else can they go to learn more? So we are actually trying to put together a collaborative web platform, what we call Manufuture Today platform. And the idea is we will have a a place where uh, some of these ideas, lectures and so on is available. There is a forum for discussion. I think this peer network is so important. We learned a lot by having face-to-face meeting. I think uh, now some of these lessons having in this Manufuture web-based could be um, an opportunity to engage broader people. And my suggestion is, uh, you know, we hopefully have this out in the next month or two. And uh, meanwhile, they can look at the links. The Harvard uh, Business Review article has some links to mydatacan.org. That's another. Uh, This is our partners at Harvard Manage It. It has some algorithm. If they're is useful, they can use it. But I think as an umbrella, this kind of future um, uh, today network could help. Another uh, opportunity, and we are working, um, one of the lessons in this article is for manufacturing competitiveness, we don't have another 20, 30 years uh, to slowly do that. You know, the competition is there. If we don't, we are not quick to scale it, um, really we cannot compete with other yeah. countries. Um, so uh, in order to do that, we really we need the manufacturers to come together. And um, so manufacturing extension program, MEP, is a resource that we are discussing how we could um, work with them. The advantage is there is an infrastructure in many states and how the same way, you know, ag extension is, uh, yeah, yeah. we're hoping we can benefit from MEP. Well, and you're right. It is, it's a, it is a problem that has uh, quite a bit of urgency from a time frame perspective in it. Um, I, I'm also assuming, Ali, that if, uh, if anybody listening uh, is from manufacturing within that 10 county area, Around around Purdue, they could reach out to you at the university or or someone at the university and and get some additional information as well. 
certainly, yes, we are uh, very much looking forward to here. We are not limited to original um, win project grant for us ended, but we are interested in manufacturers who are willing to share production data with us and help us develop better algorithm. Uh, I, we have a grant now called Analytics IN, which is funded by a state of Indiana, so anywhere in Indiana. Okay. And we also have NSF uh, project, which is federally funded. Uh, we have partners in Alabama. We have partners in Massachusetts. But again, overall, we are hoping um, there will be satellites. It's not that we can handle everything, but if you are interested, let us know. Either we can work with you directly or we can connect you to one of our partner universities. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, we'll be sure and put uh, um, ways that people can get in touch with you and the university uh, in the show notes as well, Ali. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on Status Go uh, today. I think this has been a, a great conversation. Uh, I encourage our listeners to dig deeper into this topic and the way that uh, th these SMEs can leverage uh, universities, leverage each other, leverage associations to drive that innovation. And uh, as the supply chain continues to morph, uh, take advantage of that. So Ali, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jeff. Really, it's been a pleasure and look forward uh, uh, to expand this work and see how we could leverage your network and your resources. Thank you. Excellent. To our listeners, as I mentioned, we're going to put links uh, in the show notes. You can find those show notes on intervision.com slash status dash go. Uh, and we'll be sure and have contact information as well as links to this HBR article that Ali and I have talked about. This is Jeff Tun for Ali Shakuri. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find Intervision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.